0: We're talking about God's way being best. And we talked about seven what I called attributes of God's way. Not that that's an exhaustive list of all those things that we could consider of attributes of God's way. But we talked about how that confidence and conviction or faith is imperative. Hebrews says without it, it's impossible to please Him. And we talked about the connection and the overlap of faith and obedience, we, we saw in Hebrews 11, it says, when Abraham was called to go out, he went out. He did that by faith. So faith produced what we call obedience. He was called to go out and he went out. And those things were connected, almost inseparable. We made mention of how that love is essentially, as we might explain it in some of the terms we're familiar with today, it's the love language, if you will, that Christ identifies, that the Father in heaven prefers. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We call that obedience. And so we saw that connection, how they're almost inseparable. How obedience and love for God are almost inseparable. We talked about the simplicity that's in Christ. The Apostle Paul was worried that that Christians' minds would be corrupted from that simplicity that's in Christ. That's a danger and something that we need to be on guard against. We talked about how God's way is a way of peace. He's not the author of confusion. And there's so much confusion in the world And God's not the author of that. That doesn't come from God. It originates somewhere else. God's way is a way of hope. And that's expectation. And we've prayed about that. We've sung about that this evening. That we have an expectation of a coming judgment. We have an expectation of seeing Jesus as He is. As we're told in 1 John 3. and. and in 1 John chapter 3, he says, everyone, every man that has this hope, this expectation of seeing Jesus as he is, purifies himself even as he is pure. And so we, again, we see how these terms, though we can distinctly label them and, and separate them out and talk about them, maybe define them a little bit differently. They're so closely related, it's almost hard to separate them. We talked about wisdom. Jesus said, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, a lot of times we might just call that obedience, Jesus said, I'll liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And so, as we talked about these seven attributes or aspects or or whatever you might want to call them of God's way, I I liken them maybe to the strands or the fibers of this rope, this, this, this cable, if you will, that we call God's way. And if we thought this evening just for a second of God's way being a direction, an arrow, maybe a street sign. And wouldn't that be nice if every choice that was in front of us, we just had a street sign that said, this is the way that God wants you to go. Well, that would be handy, wouldn't it? That maybe we could make a few less mistakes in this life. But what we do have is God's book. We have divine revelation that's given us guidance. And it's pointing us in God's way. And we made specific application of that to some very specific parts of our uh, public worship assemblies. Tonight I want to continue on the main theme but broaden back out and get back uh, to a bigger uh, view of that to some application that's important because God has His way and the way that things should be done and then outside of that you have infinite possibilities of variations and variables from God's way. And if this is, this is 2D, but if we were drawing it in 3D... You could just go everywhere in all these different ways. And I may mention that it was not my intention to try to talk about every error, every possible way that we could deviate from God's way, but just to identify God's way and seek that out. A lot of times when we identify God's way, we see that's not what we're doing. And that's why we're going to talk about what we see tonight in the Scripture. Very important uh, subject matter that we find in God's Word. A statement that Jesus makes in Luke Chapter thirteen, if you want to follow along in the scripture. Luke chapter thirteen and verse, verses one through five. I don't know if I got it. There it is. It finally woke up. Luke chapter thirteen, verses one through five. It says there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except you repent, ye shall all Likewise, perish. And so Jesus makes this statement. And He brings up an idea, a concept, a principle that's fairly common today. You even hear people say things like that today, that if something terrible happens to someone, someone will inevitably come in there and say, well, that's God's judgment on them. That's God's punishment on them for, for something that they've done. And Jesus points to a couple of examples that evidently that His audience was familiar with. And He says, do you think these people died these terrible deaths? because they were just the worst sinners ever. They were somehow more uh, terrible than, than everybody else around them or, or whatever the case might be. And he said, no, I'm telling you, that's not the case. But then he got to the point that actually mattered. He said, but unless you repent, except you repent, you'll likewise perish. That's a, a comparison word. doesn't mean a tower's going to fall on you. doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get mixed in with some sacrifices, means you're going to suffer a terrible fate. And that's what Jesus was teaching about that necessity of repentance. So I want to look at that subject this evening with you as we think about God's way. And I want you to think about what we read out of God's book about repentance and compare that to what your concept of repentance is this evening. Because I have noticed as I have uh, traveled and visited with people and studied with people from God's Word that a lot of people have a different concept of repentance than what we found taught in the Scripture. First Peter chapter 2, verse number 9, the Scripture says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So... When we see this call of God, one of the things that we notice is that it's a call out of darkness and into light. It's a call to leave one place and come to another place. And that's what we find in God's Word. And so we see from the beginning just in the call that it's a call to change. It's a call to be different. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we have this list that we find in God's Word, and He says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These things aren't God's way. It's not the way that He wants us to live. The world tries to package these these things up, all that sexual immorality that's mentioned there, and it tries to make it appealing, make it acceptable, make it something that it's not. But the scripture lists those things out. And he says, I told you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 9, we see a similar list. He says, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? See the same statement, same statement idea that's being put forth. He says, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And so he gives another list of what we might hear called today lifestyles or, or choices that people might make. Ways that they want to live their life. And he says, people that live their life these ways, that practice these things, won't inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? We might say in in, in our language today, these people aren't going to go to heaven. They're not going to be saved. That ought to grab our attention. I'm going to put those lists side by side. So we are just got them in list format and we put them right next to each other for comparison. I have the identical concepts highlighted there in yellow. And it's not that these lists are in any way to be exhaustive. In fact, uh, we saw there in, in the list that we have in Galatians that he says, and the such like, things like these, says they won't inherit the kingdom of God. And I want you to think about the prevalence of, of those things on that list. And I want you to be honest with yourself and your life. Do you know what those words mean? Are you familiar with all of those terms? Shouldn't you be? If there's a list in the Bible that says people that live this way won't go to heaven, don't you think it'd be a good idea to know what all those words mean? Uncleanliness. What does that mean? When you start to do the word study on that, that's talking about having impure motives. Some things on that list are quite specific and others are quite broad. And we can find ourselves not lining up with God's way. Hatred. You know what sorcery means? You do the study on that word, it comes from the Greek word pharmakia, I believe. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't know how to pronounce Greek words very well. We get our word pharmacy, I believe, from that word. The definition is the use or administering of drugs. Maybe not quite what we thought. And I think there's an obvious distinction between legitimate Drugs that are prescribed by legitimate doctors to treat legitimate medical conditions and drugs that people seek to get high. I think there's a pretty clear distinction. I think we can see that by observation. The use of ministering to sorcery. People that practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And we live in a world that wants to excuse these things. Wants to call them a disease. And if someone can't help but act these ways then how could a loving God require anything different of them? That's the the concept that's put out there in the world. The Scripture says people that practice these things won't inherit the kingdom of God. God doesn't put this list out there and identify them as diseases that can't be cured. He identifies them as sin problems that need to be repented of. In the next verse, remember our t- context. There we were in First Corinthians six verses nine through ten. So now we're picking up in verse number eleven. So notice it's the shorter list. This is the list out of First Corinthians. He says there are fornicators and adulterers and adulterers and effeminate. Do the word study on that sometime. It's not pleasant. Abusers of themselves with mankind, covetous, drunkards revilers, extortioners. Such were some of you. Oh, he's talking to the church at Corinth. He says, some of you were those things. But you are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And there we have the good news in that passage. Unlike many people teach today that Some of those are conditions where maybe somebody's born that way. Perhaps it's a disease that there's no cure for. Or perhaps it's some genetic condition that they have no control over, which is false and hopeless. Or there's the hope that we see in God's Word. We see the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that people that were guilty of terrible, abominable things... And because of the blood of Christ, they were washed, they were sanctified, they were set apart, and they were in a condition where they could inherit the kingdom of God. What is repentance? When we look at the definition of that word, it means to change one's mind. To change one's mind for the better. heartily to amend with abhorrence of one's past sins. That's how Thayer defines the word repent. Strong's says to think differently, or afterwards, that is to reconsider So at its base level, repentance has to do with what goes on in our mind. We have to change the way that we think about things. The word repentance, a change of mind as it appears to one who repents of a purpose that he has formed or something he has done. Strong says compunction by implication reversal. What does that mean? By implication reversal. Well, By implication reversal. You see, people do these things because they've been deceived by sin. Because they think those things are good for some reason. They want to pursue those things. It's what they desire. And they need to change the way that they think about those things. They need to realize that all of those things are harmful, destructive things their vanity, their vexation of spirit. They leave behind a trail of, of broken hearts and broken homes and destruction and misery and all of those things. And if people will accept the truth and change their mind about that, that's when you get to the by implication a reversal. You stop saying this is something I want and say this is something that I abhor because I recognize it for what it is. And you turn away from that and you go a different way. And so when we change our mind about something, then a reversal is the logical conclusion after that first changing of the mind. And so repentance starts in our minds with the way that we think and our thought processes. We see the scripture teaches us that that repentance, like many of these things we've talked about this week, is a foundational doctrinal principle principle of New Testament Christianity. Hebrews 6, verse number 1, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. In 2 Timothy 2, verse number 25, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Acknowledging truth. Just simple, basic foundational principle of repentance. And I run into more and more in discussing with people, studying God's Word with people. People will have had a battle with maybe something that was on that list that we had earlier. And they'll say, well, I repented. And I'll say, well, what does that mean? I had one person tell me, well, I went in front of the church and I asked for the prayers of the church. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But if, you, if that's your concept of repentance, that's not very accurate. Confession is important. It's taught in the Scripture. Confession is something that's beneficial. But repentance is more. And as God's children, we need to be experts in repentance because it's a foundational building block of Christianity. We need to understand what it is. We need to understand how it applies to us. We need to understand how to to teach it to others. It's woven into the gospel call. What did Peter preach on that day of Pentecost? Repent and be baptized. It's it's inseparable from the teaching of the gospel. In Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2, he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so repentance is changing your mind. And we see that uh, elaborated on here in Romans chapter 12. That word transformed. We're familiar with that word. A transition. A change. Romans 8 verses 6-7 through To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. It's a change of mind, a renewing of mind. That word transformed, that comes from a Greek word where we get this idea of metamorphosis. If I got that up there, the, the caterpillar and the butterfly. If you're a gardener, if you try to grow things, you're not a huge fan of those caterpillars, are you? So, what do they do? They're consuming, they're going through devouring, they're a negative impact on your garden. And then they're in this state where it appears to be something dead, lifeless, a tomb of some sort. And then they come out looking completely different. And who doesn't want butterflies around? People plant gardens just to draw butterflies in. And butterflies go around and they they pollinate the different flowers and and they, they have a beneficial purpose. And that is the concept of being transformed by changing your mind and changing the way that you think. So it starts with that mindset. Who is the message of repentance applicable to? Sometimes we think, well, repentance is something that needs to be preached to people who are outside of Christ. It needs to be preached to those that are, uh, that are sinners, that don't have the blood of Christ, that don't know Jesus Christ. In Acts 17, verse number 30, it says, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And so we see that the message of repentance has a universal application. It's a message that needs to go to all. In 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise that some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, it's necessary to change to avoid perishing. Not willing that any should perish. It's not God's desire that anyone perish. But just, this lines up exactly with what Jesus said, doesn't it? Jesus said, unless you repent, you shall perish. And he says, God's not willing. God's desire is not that anyone perish, but that they come to repentance. And so it's a necessity. And it has universal application. Yes, repentance needs to be taught. To those that are lost, those who don't know Christ, who are outside of Christ. In Matthew chapter 3, verse number 1, it says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preparing the way for Christ. And he did that with a message of repentance. In Luke chapter 24, verse number 46, he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You know what they call that passage? The Great Commission. Do you know that? That's a parallel. That's Luke's parallel of of this idea of the Great Commission. You're familiar. Most people are familiar with Matthew 28, 19, 20, 19 following. Most people are familiar with Mark 16, 15 and 16. It's the same concept. It's stated in some different terms: repentance and remission of sins. Matthew said, that The gospel be taken to all nations. We teach, baptize. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever commanded. Repentance and remission of sins is a message that needs to go out to those who are lost. But we find the message of repentance goes farther than that it continues into the life of a Christian. In James 1, verse number 21, it says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. So James, writing to Christians, he says you've got to lay apart all filthiness, all this superfluity, all this overflow of naughtiness. naughtiness." So there's still changes that need to be made. You read through the New Testament writings, you see this concept of putting off the old man and putting on the new man, of deconstructing those old, bad, sinful habits and replacing them with good, wholesome, godly ways in our life. And that's taught throughout the Scripture, throughout the New Testament, that need for those who are Christians to continue to plant God's Word, to to cut off engrafted Word, where you saw one branch off and you put a notch there And you replace it with a a branch from a different type of tree and you wrap that and you implant that into that tree and it begins to grow and be fruitful. Sawing off that old branch, putting in that branch of God's Word and bringing forth fruit. Receive with meekness, then grafted forth. So Christians were taught this concept of repentance. That there's things that still need to be put out of their lives and put on. In Ephesians 4, verse number 23 says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There's the changing of your mind. Repentance. And put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And so we see Christians being taught this concept of continued repentance, of the need for continual repentance when error comes into our lives. When we're reproved, by God's word, not only are individual Christians taught the concept of repentance, we see the concept of repentance for entire congregations of the Lord's church. And in Revelation chapter two and verse number four, he says, "Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. This is a, the church at Ephesus, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent." And do the first works or else I will come to thee quickly and I will remove that candlestick out of its place except thou repent. The congregation needed to repent. But they left their first love. They lose sight of their mission. They lose sight of what the church was supposed to be doing. Jesus said, I come to seek and save that which is lost. How many organizations that call themselves a church have gotten into the daycare business, have gotten into the education business, uh, secular education business, have gotten into the entertainment industry. What's the mission of the church? What's the function of the church? What's the purpose of the church? Jesus died. He came and He died to seek and to save that which is lost. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. It's to hold up that truth of the gospel and sound out that gospel to the lost. It's in the soul-saving business. That's the business of the church. And sometimes the church gets distracted. Sometimes the church loses track of that mission, of that purpose that it has, and it needs to make changes. And so sometimes changes need to be made for congregations. We see the congregation at Pergamos. In chapter 2, verse number 14, he says, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So also hast thou them all, that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We see sometimes congregations that allow doctrinal error in. And this congregation here was called out, and they were told, you got doctrines in there that need to go. There needs to be a change. Maybe they thought these things were harmless. They get correction from God. It's not harmless. Repent. Change the way that you think about that. God hates those, those teachings. And therefore they ought to be abhorred by His children. In Thyatira, Revelation 2, verse number 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds." And there was repentance that was needed at another congregation. And so, immorality. And whether that was just had become accepted or people were turning their heads the other way, maybe they did what, what is so common in our day and age and we have this concept of relative morality. And we look at God's way like this and we look at all these possible variants and we might take one form of sexual immorality and go, well, at least it's not this form of sexual immorality. Where, where are we getting an idea like that? No form of sexual immorality is acceptable to God. All sexual immorality was included in that list. And so we got to change the way that we think. We can't start thinking like the world's trying to teach us to think about how we account for sin because God's not a man. And He... His ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. The church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, verse number 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous, therefore, and repent. You remember what the church, church's problem at Laodicea was? You back up a few verses. If you're taking notes, I think it starts in, in maybe 15 or 17. Because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods and have of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What was their problem? They were puffed up. They were arrogant. They said, oh, we're doing good. We're the Lord's church. And the way they saw themselves and the way the Lord saw them were completely different. And they needed to repent. They needed to get their mind right. They needed to humble themselves and understand where they truly stood before God. It wasn't that they were without value. It's that they were blinded by pride and they were filthy with sin before God. And God had remedies for all of those conditions. So when He reproved them and called them to repentance, He gave that correction, didn't He? And we talked about that. When is the time for the message of repentance? Acts 17.30 again, He says, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. When the message of repentance has application in your life, the time is now. The time is not, well, we're really busy right now. We'll, we'll come back to that. We'll circle back around to it. Time is right now. In Second Corinthians 6, verse number 2, For he saith, I have heard thee in the time accepted, in the day of salvation have I secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So there's a sense of urgency that's always connected to the message of repentance. If there's change that needs to be made, that change needs to be made now. In James 4, verse number 14, For whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, then vanisheth away we don't have any guarantee. There's no certainty. And it's not very long that you live this life before you start saying those things that old people say. Well, the time goes by so fast. It seems like only yesterday. This is just a little while. It's just a drop. And then it's gone. And that's if you live a long life. And we have no guarantee of that. Why? Why the message of repentance? Let's keep reading in Acts chapter 17, verse number 30. He commands all men everywhere to repent. First, I want to look at that word command. That's why. Because God commanded it. Why do we go out and we teach the message of repentance? Because God commanded it. Why do we practice repentance as individual Christians? Because it's a command. Why does the church need to make changes and repent if it's not lining up with what we find in the Scripture? Because it's a command. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. Because there's a judgment coming. Because there's a reckoning coming. See, we don't have to get, it's not our place to get in the the judgment business and the justice business. Make all the rights wrong. That's not for us to do. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. He's going to take care of it. He's going to make things right. There's going to be a reckoning, and what we need to be concerned about with is where we're going to stand when we stand before the judge of the living and the dead, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. That's why the message of repentance is so important, so critical. It's His words. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me, Receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him the same. The words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. These are the words of Jesus that we read in Luke chapter 13. Except you repent, you'll perish. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, he says, It's you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and for the glory of his power. The terrible fate is not a tower falling on you. It's not getting mixed in with someone's sacrifices. It's what the Bible talks about and calls hell. When he says they'll be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, the Bible teaches a, a great deal on that. Jude calls it the blackness of darkness. It's described as a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm doesn't die. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness. Separation from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's why the message of repentance. That's why it's so critical. That's why it's so urgent. So the how of the message of repentance. What does it mean to repent? It's not a synonym for confession. Just saying, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that isn't the same thing as repentance. The Apostle Paul, I believe, teaches us a great deal about this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse number 9, when he contrasts sorrow of the world with godly sorrow. He says, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrow to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us and nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So he makes a contrast between the sorrow of this world and godly sorrow. And he says the sorrow of this world produces death. What is the sorrow of this world? You know, a lot of times people are sorry for their sins when they're embarrassed by their sins. When they get caught their sins. When somebody finds out something they thought was a a secret. Stuff like that, that's worldly sorrow. That's not what godly sorrow is. And that's not exhaustive, but that's the concept. There's not a a list of these things in Scripture, but a lot of times what that uh, ends up ends up producing is things like depression. It ends up uh, getting people down and, and, and buying into this idea or this value that they're worthless and there's no hope for them and that they, they're just too far gone. And, and that's not an idea that's taught in the Scripture. We saw that earlier. There's people that were guilty of, of terrible, abominable acts, and they were washed. They were sanctified. They were set apart by the blood of Jesus Christ. A lot of people look for justification the finger-pointing and the excuses, and the blame game. And that's what worldly sorrow produces. They're looking not for a cure. They're looking for relief of the symptoms. That's what worldly sorrow does. People excel in deception, and and they, they just try to cover things up. And he contrasts that to these things of... Godly sorrow, carefulness, clearing, indignation, fear, longing for forgiveness, zeal, revenge. And I want to look at a couple of verses with those concepts. And I'll call those evidence, evidences, or he says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance. And so then he pointed out these, these seven things or evidences that that godly sorrow produced in them, ending in a clearing of themselves. Repentance, where they begin to change their mind and change their actions. The haste, we see that kind of haste in Acts chapter 10, verse number 33. Immediately, therefore, I sent to thee, and now it's done well that thou art come. Now, therefore, we're all present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. When he knew what to do, he didn't say, you know what? I'm pretty busy right now. I'll get to that next week. I'll get to that when tax season is over. I'll get to that when the school year comes to an end. I'll get to that during spring break. When he knew what to do, he did it immediately. We see that. Psalms 119 and verse number 60, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. That's the kind of haste that he's talking about. He's not talking about carelessness. He's talking about a sense of urgency. What clearing of yourselves. When you do the word study on that, it's it's an apology Or a defense. And that's what essentially what we would hire an attorney for, right? If we were had been accused, we would hire an attorney to represent us and to to make our plea before a judge. And we see that this repentance it led to an apology or a defense, but it's not like the defense of the world, because what's the sorrow of the world do? The sorrow of the world hires an attorney to get out of it, to escape the consequences. To convince some panel of of people that it didn't actually happen the way that it said, or they're being misrepresented, or you just don't understand, or there's extenuating circumstances, or all those things. We see an example of a godly apology, a godly defense in Psalms 51, verse number four. When the psalmist says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. You know what that's called? That's called entering a plea of guilty. That's not making excuses. It's not shifting blame. It's not saying, well, you had this impossible standard. He says, I'm guilty. I sinned against you, you alone, and you're right and I'm wrong. And that's the kind of thinking, that's the kind of mindset that godly sorrow produces. It recognizes God for who He is, that He's supreme, that his way is best and that departure from his way is error. In Proverbs 28, 13, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. It's not a plea of no contest. It's not saying, well, you know, I'm not going to say whether I was guilty or not. I'll just accept what it... It's confessing and forsaking. And that's evidence of... Repentance, a biblical repentance. So, what vexation. In Psalms 38, verse number 3, he says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long for my loins are filled with a loathsome disease and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by the reason of the disquietness of my heart. (coughs) I want to ask you this evening, does that sound like somebody that says, "Well, nobody's perfect? Yes, we're all sinners. Yes, we all need the blood of Christ. Yes, we're not going to be perfect. We'll continue to need the blood of Christ. John said, if any man says he has no sin, he's a liar. But that's not just going, well, no, he's perfect. Nobody can be perfect, so why shouldn't... That's that's, that's just saying I'm not going to change. That's not repentance. This is... Being truly disgusted with the sin. And it's not to the point of inaction, but rather it's a disgust with that sin that produces the action, that produces the clearing, that seeks the reconciliation, that enters the guilty plea, and he tries to move forward. He said, What fear? And this is godly fear. He says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy is understanding. In Proverbs 16, verse number 6, he says, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. The fear of the Lord brings people closer to him. And that's the opposite of the fear of the world, right? Because what you're afraid of in this world, you stay away from. If you're afraid of the dark, you stay in the light. But if you're afraid of the Lord, you fear the Lord, you respect the Lord, then you stay away from evil. Stay away from those things that he said are hurtful and harmful that are abominable to him, that he despises. And so that fear of the Lord draws individuals closer to the Lord and not further from them. Ecclesiastes 12 and 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be evil. Because he's appointed a day in which he'll judge the world and righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Because that judgment is coming when every word is going to be brought into judgment. Fear God and keep his commandments. He said, What vehement desire. I think we see that kind of desire expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans when he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. He really, really wanted for them to be saved. You probably know what that's like, don't you? There's probably people that are out there living outside of Christ that you really, really want to be saved, but they're going to have to want it, aren't they? They're the ones that are in control of of that. Their soul. In Colossians 3, verse number 2, set your affection on things above and not on the things of this earth. Desires. Our desires need to change. Our desires in that natural state, that's the carnal mind. That we, talk, that we read about earlier in Romans chapter 6. And if our desires just stay in that natural state, it can't be pleasing to God. It's the carnal mind's empty with God. It's not subject to the law of God. And so that has to be changed to a spiritual mindset. <laughs> set your affection. And when I see that word set, it always takes me back to the days when Erica or Macy now, my daughter, or, or none of my other kids are there to cook for me when it's time for me to eat. So I go out to the garage and I get the frozen disc out of the deep freeze and I don't know what to do with it so I have to turn the box over and it says, set the oven to 450. It's at zero and I got to turn it to 450. And that's what he's talking about, our desires. Our desires are for things here in this world and we got to turn them somewhere else. Got to set them toward things above and not on things of this earth. And those desires need to be strong to have that relationship with God. What zeal? That's defined as a fervor of spirit. He says, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. He said, I count all things but loss. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. That is a, a statement of zeal. You know, we, we talk, we, you've probably heard some people talk about some sacrifices they made, some things that they've given up. A lot of times you might, you might catch a little bit of a, a sadness or a sense of loss for those things that they gave up, for those things that they sacrificed. And here is the concept of I gave things up and to me they were like a giant pile of manure to be able to win Christ be able to live with Him in eternity. And that's a, a, a mindset of zeal, that I may win Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. Being made conformable unto The gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the teaching of baptism, how that we can be baptized into his death, be buried with him by baptism, rise up to walk in newness of life, being made conformable unto us if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And so there was that zeal and fervor of spirit. And he says revenge, and that's defined as as a self discipline or correction. We see that concept taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 25. He says, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate or has self-control in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring in it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway. And so here the Apostle Paul uses a boxing analogy. And he says, I keep under my body. What does that mean, keep under our body? He says, I'm not like one that's fighting the air like shadow boxing. You think of that boxer that's that's shadow boxing, and he's beating the air, he's fighting the air. He said, I'm not like that. But I do keep under my body. And that is a a boxing word there. When you study that word, it means to strike under the eye as a pugilist his adversary. That's how the, the lexicon defines it. I didn't know what a pugilist was. I don't have very good vocabulary sometimes. That's a boxer, a professional boxer. And that's the analogy that he uses of what he does to his own body to bring it in. That's called self discipline, self correction. Telling the body, you're not in charge, the mind's in charge, the will of the Lord's in charge. And sometimes we struggle, don't we? Sometimes the body says, well, I want to take a nap. There's work that needs to be done. Sometimes the body says, well, I'm ready to eat, but there's still work that needs to be done. And that's what he's talking about. He says, I keep under my body. I tell the body, no, I punch it in the face so that I don't become a castaway, so that I learn self-control, so that I demand of myself self-discipline because they that strive for the Master are temperate in all things. Galatians 5 and 24, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh. Crucified is a strong word. There's a lot implied there. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lust and desires. And that's the concept that's there, the concept of, of, of self discipline and correction. So, in conclusion tonight, repentance is a change in mindset that leads to a reversal of action. In Galatians 2 and verse number 20, the apostle said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This evening, don't know the hearts, the minds of anyone that's present, but we've talked this week that God's way is the best. If we found that in our heart, in our mind, we're not lining up with what we see in God's Word, then we need to change. In our life, if your personal life, if the way that you're living, the things that you're doing aren't lining up with how God calls His children to act, then you need to change. In your home, if your home's not organized and structured and your priorities aren't what a godly Christian home should be, then there needs to be change. In your congregation. If your priorities, if your mission, if your focus, if it's not what it ought to be, if it's not what it was in the scripture, then it needs to change. And if there's change that needs to happen, then the time is now that there's a sense of urgency, and that needs to happen now. Because he's appointed a day which he'll judge the world, and that day will be here faster than you can imagine. Don't know when, but it's coming. We need to be ready. And change needs to be made. If you've not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you've been taught of Christ. You know of his death, burial, and resurrection. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you're ready to put on Christ and baptism and obey him. This congregation is ready to assist you in doing that. Repent and be baptized. It's The message of the gospel. And you know when that message got preached that time, he says this promise is to you, and to your children, and to all that are far off. And so we preach those words today. We preach that Bible message still today. If you've done that, the message of repentance still applies to Christians. So if you need to make changes, now's the time. And if we can be of assistance to you in any way, whether obedience to the gospel, whether prayers of the church on your behalf, whether being your, your brethren and your counselors to help you battle that sin problem, make the changes that you need to make. And if you'll let that be known by having a front seat on one of these front pews while we stand together and sing the song uh, that's been selected for invitation.